That's Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, our subject today is one that's very much in the front of every business school, all public services, broadcasting institutions. We're going to be considering racial and religious prejudice, misogyny, exclusivity, and bigotry. And I hope we'll be able to grasp that the kingdom of Jesus is one in which all bigotry and prejudice is abolished, that Jesus has come for all. There are no limits on his compassion. Anyone, whoever they might be, from whatever background, is welcomed by Jesus as they come to him in repentance and faith. There is also going to be a profound challenge and something of a shock to us from this passage It's not at all hard to see how these are the issues, uh, though at first glance there appear to be so many problems in the nine verses we just had read that we may wonder how we're going to get to the end of it. Did you notice Jesus' silence there in verse 23? He didn't answer this poor woman a word. Did you notice his reluctance in verse 24? He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But what about this woman and what about her child? And then do you notice what appears to be his extraordinary insult in verse 26? It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. One writer describes this as an atrocious saying expressing incredible insolence and based on the worst kind of chauvinism. Worst of all, I think, is the disciples' prejudice, which we will dwell on later there in verse 23. What kind of tone do you think Uh, they would have made this request to Jesus when they came to Jesus and begged him, saying, send her away, she's crying out after us. It's almost as if the Archbishop of Canterbury would have stood up in the House of Lords this week and in his address on the boat migrants would have said, well, really, with regards to the women and children, they're from foreign nations, we're not concerned about them at all, forget about sending them back off, off to Rwanda, tow their boats into the middle of the channel, and forget about them. Well, there are two basic points to today's passage. The first is much less controversial, and in making it, what I'd like to do is to sidestep the tricky issues and save them for the second point, if that's all right. We'll have to do quite a bit of thinking when we get there, so save some brain space. The obvious point is the universal rule of Jesus, his universal rule. In these verses, we find Jesus exercising the kind of saving rule that he has shown to Israel through the account of Matthew thus far. But the big change 
is that this rule is now exercised towards a rank outsider. Uh, we've had hints of this point on a number of occasions. Remember the Magi who came and knelt before the baby Jesus and worshipped him? Uh, remember the leper who came and knelt at Jesus' feet and the centurion immediately afterwards who, in chapter 8, came and pleaded with Jesus, somebody from right outside, and Jesus commended his faith. So we've had hints of it, but here it really comes to the fore, and we'll see why in a minute. Uh, the location and Jesus' withdrawal, that emphasizes the point of his universal rule. He went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. At the start of chapter 15, we find Jesus facing acute hostility from the Pharisees and scribes who come to oppose him. He critiques them vigorously, and now in verse 21, he withdraws right, right outside of Israel, 20 to 30 miles northwest of Galilee to the land of Tyre and Sidon. So, you know, Jesus might be able to bring the glorious blessings of the rule of God's uh, new creation to individuals within Israel. What about outside? Here he is outside. No tin pot dictator of a tiny territory. He's Lord of all. And he brings the benefits of his sovereign and saving rule wherever he goes. But the point's also emphasized by the woman's situation and Jesus' healing. Matthew in his gospel takes care to distinguish between demon possession and epilepsy and mental illness. And this girl, in some ways, is in the grip of the most desperate evil power. And we can empathize deeply with her. She came out and was crying. Had she heard of Jesus? Was she present on some previous occasion? Had she, she traveled off to Galilee? Or had one of her relatives traveled to Galilee? Who knows? But she comes to him, and she's crying out after him. You know, Mark, in his account, says Jesus, well, he goes into a house because he doesn't want to be recognized as he goes into Tyre and Sidon, but she's heard he's there, and she comes after him. And then look at what he does. At the end of the uh, piece, verse 28 O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. No prayer, no special ceremony, no bell, book, and candle, no incantation. He doesn't even visit the girl. He simply speaks. He's Lord of all. But then, of course, there's the woman's nationality. I mean, again, Matthew draws attention to this. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and she was crying. In the, in the book of Numbers, it's the Canaanite king who opposes Moses. In the book of Joshua, it's the Canaanites who battle against Israel. In the book of Judges 1 and 2 Samuel, it's the Philistines who inhabit Canaan and they are the arch enemies. No nation more personifies, if you like, the resistance to the people of God than the Canaanites. And now Matthew says, behold, a, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. So Matthew is deliberately pointing this out in a way that uh, other gospel, that Mark doesn't, to emphasize that Jesus is Lord of all. And wherever he goes, he brings the benefits of his saving rule. And then there's her behavior and his response. She's crying out. The tense actually implies she went on and on and on and on. She wouldn't let go. She kept crying out. Such was her desperate need. And then she recognizes him. She describes him as Lord, son of David. I recognize you are the Messiah. Few others have done that in the gospel. 
and she kneels. And we've seen the Magi do that. We've seen the leper do this. The centurion has come, but now she comes. This enemy of Israel, this rank outsider, a woman, a Gentile, an unclean person. He's Lord of all wherever he goes. So the straightforward point for us to grasp is the Lordship of Christ and the bringing bringing of his blessings to whoever will come and kneel at his feet. Uh, We've noted, haven't we, over the last weeks, the great care with which Matthew writes his gospel. And Matthew's aim overall is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus. He is our teacher, our instructor. We are in his seminary, if you like, his college. He's teaching us. And in this module, in this part of his gospel, he's showing us the Lord Jesus assembling his assembly, gathering his gathering, churching his church, bringing together those who are going to be his people. So chapter 16, verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock, that is the, the, the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, I will build my church. And here we're being shown that the Lord Jesus is all his authority not simply in Israel, but gathering his people, a Canaanite, an enemy, in outside territory, if you like. There's no boardroom, no bedroom, no staff room, no wardroom, no classroom, no common room, no virtual space, no marketplace, no trading floor, no shop floor, no building site, no social media site, where Jesus is not Lord and where he is not gathering his people. That remarkable? And isn't it striking that Jesus uses the term the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Now, we're expecting the good shepherd to gather his sheep from the scattered lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet here he seems to work right against that as he gathers a lost sheep from an altogether different flock. Now there's the obvious point. Now let's deal with some of the ugly prejudice expressed by the disciples, and what you might say possibly echoed by Jesus. And I want us to consider the unbounded compassion of Christ. Now, how do we get there, the unbounded compassion of Christ, when there's such ugly prejudice, bias, misogyny even? Well, here are the problems. Jesus is silence. We've mentioned that in verse 23. He didn't answer a word. Here are the problems. Jesus' reluctance, how is sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, Here are the problems, the ugliness of the insult that he seems to give in verse 26. It's not right to the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Is he calling this woman a dog? And especially when you think of uh, the incident, which is one, I think, of the most poignant of all the incidents in the gospel, you can imagine this woman with her daughter and the pain and medical appointments and sadness that has been on this household. And she came and she knelt at his feet. Lord, have mercy on me. Help me. And then he says, well, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What's going on here? I think the key to the peace is the disciples' prejudice. And so could I ask you, if you did kind of face some of these problems as the reading was read, 
to work through the reading again through the eyes of the disciples. There's no doubt that that prejudice is really ugly. He did not answer a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. Could it be that Matthew wants us, as those he is discipling, to recognize the lesson that he, as a disciple, learned this memorable day as Jesus discipled him? Could it be that Jesus' silence in verse 23 was actually designed by the master teacher to provoke the disciples' prejudice, which he knew was there, to bring it out into the open? Could it be that Jesus' comment, I was sent only to the lost house of the sheep of Israel, is deliberately designed to elicit the woman's response, that he actually recognizes genuine faith because she said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Could it be, therefore, that he sees this genuine faith And so he responds both to express, you know, the temporal limitations of what he, as the Messiah, could do in historical Israel, but also to elicit and bring out into the open her faith, much as he does with the woman with bleeding earlier in the gospel. (laughs) But what about the insult? It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, the trouble with text on a page is it doesn't necessarily carry tone or facial expression. Could it be that Jesus' comment there is expressing the contemptuous popular view of the religious culture, especially of the establishment, who would have seen this Canaanite as a filthy, unwashed, unclean Gentile dog. They actually, the Jews of Jerusalem, called the Gentiles Gentile dogs. They were unwashed and unclean. And therefore, could it be that Jesus, in this instructional, worked-out seminar, you might say, is parroting the view of the rotten establishment who haven't realized the scope of his unbounded mercy. And so he says, look, it's not right to take the Gentiles' bread and throw it to the dogs. That fits perfectly, doesn't it, with what we were seeing last week about washing the heart? Here's an unclean person, if ever there was one. She's filthy. She's a Gentile dog, say the establishment. And Jesus parrots that, which then produces this wonderful, wonderful expression of faith. She's already called him the son of David. Verse 27, she seems to understand far more than the disciples that Jesus has come for all. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I wonder who was smiling. Somebody says that, well, the text on the page can't convey the twinkle in the eye of Jesus. I'm nervous about that because this poor woman, I mean, her child is oppressed with the most ghastly, Um, evil, is he actually kind of got a twinkle in his eye? But maybe she would certainly a tear in her eye. But even a crumb, Lord. 
He is getting us, I think, to consider the priority of the Jew in the immediate life and witness of Jesus, but at the same time, as disciples, to grasp that Jesus has come for all and that there's no one who kneels at his feet and asks for mercy who is outside the scope of his salvation, even the unwashed, even the unclean, even the filthy Gentile dog. If anybody is unclean and unacceptable, it is this woman in the eyes of the establishment. But she comes, she sees, she begs, she kneels. Now, it seems to me that then this is wonderful comfort to any one of us here this morning who has a desire, like this woman, to benefit from the loving rule of Jesus. Whoever we are and wherever we've come from, whatever our past, whatever our struggles. It seems to me that this is a tremendous challenge to anyone who has the prejudice of one of these disciples. Often when I'm preparing to speak on a passage like this, I'll draw a grid on a blank sheet of paper. Every race, every creed, every condition, every profession, every race, Afghan, Alaskan, Albanian, American, Andorran, Angolan, Zairean, Zambian, Zimbabwean. I was going to say Australian, but I see we've got an Australian bishop with us this morning in the congregation, so even the English are included. Every creed, animist, humanist, materialist, secularist, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, he's Lord of all, he's come for all. Every condition, wealthy, destitute, privileged, deprived, sick, well, straight, gay, convicted, criminal, upright establishment figure, he's Lord of all, he's come for all. The gospel, he's building his church from people, from every nation, every Creed, every condition, every profession, builder, butcher, banker, broker, student, secretary, career, uh, carer, programmer, trader, teacher, marketing, nursing, medical doctor, spin doctor. I spoke on this passage a number of years ago. Jonathan Aitken, the disgraced former cabinet minister, had just been to speak at St. Helens. It was a remarkable evening. Some of you will remember it as he spoke of, in total despair, in the prison cell, turning to Christ. And I couldn't couldn't help remembering, as he spoke, the the Guardian headline when he was convicted. He lied and lied and lied and lied, the amoral architect of his own ruin. He's Lord of all. He's come for all. And even a publicly disgraced former cabinet minister, he kneels in his prison cell is included. Now, it seems to me that this truth, which I hope we've come to now, has tremendous application to the inquirer, to the disciple, and then most importantly, to the establishment of Jesus' day. Comfort. Well, it is possible, isn't it, to think as we come into church that really, you know, I am an unclean. I am so... Maybe we struggle with a particular area of sin. Maybe we're here for the very first time. We've never been in a church for decades. Maybe we look around and think, well, everybody else, they all seem so sorted, and we can't see what comes out of the heart. God can. They all seem so well sorted, and it's possible to feel, well, do you know, I am just like this gentile, unclean woman, and 
if we will kneel at the feet of Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. I worked in a church once where there was an eight o'clock communion. And only a tiny number of people came, probably about 10. But one individual used to sit right at the back every week. And over the years, I got to know him a little bit. And I remember saying to him, why is it that you sit so far off? Oh, he'd done something 20, 30 years. He, he told me about it. He said, I just feel so unclean. Well, here we're learning that that is precisely the person the Lord Jesus has come for. But then it challenges us, doesn't it? And this must have been primary application for the disciples. For the Jewish disciple of Jesus Christ, that God was going to assemble his assembly now from men and women from right outside Israel. And there was to be no boundary, no racial prejudice, no bigotry. It took them years to grasp this. I don't know who we consider the most unlikely individual in our circle of knowledge of people to come to Christ. Isn't it marvelous? So we had this morning the city pastors advertised, you know, the most unlikely individual, somebody who is so paralytically drunk on a Thursday night that they aren't able to find their way home. I mean, there's somebody you might think is just so unlikely, some rank atheistic skeptic, somebody who speaks against Jesus in the office or in the hospital, or on the shop floor. For the Jew today, it might be the Palestinian. For the Orangeman, it might be the Catholic. For the Ukrainian, it might be the, the Russian. For, for the mainland uh, Chinese, I don't know who it might be. Perhaps the Japanese, for who we were praying for today. For the Taiwanese, it might be the, the Chinese. The most unlikely person. And this should widen our horizons and broaden our own reach. I can't help thinking of what they call friendship evangelism in the 80s as a result of overly robust proselytizing methods. You know, we'll just bash them on the head with a Bible. We must develop relational ties with a person before we share the gospel. There's some, something very good to be said about that. But there is a great danger, isn't it, there, that we allow that to narrow our scope. I will only seek to share the good news of Jesus with that tiny three or four people I know in the street where I live. Or I must wait. Seems to me that this crashes straight through those prejudices that disciples so easily hold. But there is one final key area, and I, I want us to look at this carefully and to listen very carefully to it. I've been thinking about it all week to the establishment of Matthew's day. Think of the context. We saw last week a delegation of Pharisees sent from Jerusalem to challenge Jesus and his disciples. The peace began with the criticism of Jesus for not obeying the ceremonial laws of washing. Before addressing the ceremonial washing issue, Jesus turned to his opponents and exposed their ethical hypocrisy. He did it brilliantly, 
by going back to the law of the Ten Commandments. And his point was that taken as a whole, as a culture, the first century Judaism of Jesus' day had rejected God's law and had set up their own standards. Their ethics were empty. As a result, for all the magnificent religious spectacle of their ceremonies in first century Jerusalem, First century Judaism, Jesus describes as vain worship. Just have a look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 15. Of the Judaism of his day, Jesus says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, that's a quote from Isaiah written 700 plus years before Jesus came, and he takes it and applies it directly to the culture of his day. We have to realize the force of what Jesus is saying here. Herod's temple was one of the finest buildings the world had ever seen. The worship he's referring to is the Passover festival, for example, where a million people descended on Jerusalem, the Day of Atonement, where the whole nation ground to a halt, stopped, the Feast of Weeks, where, as you see in Acts chapter 2, people come from every nation across the Mediterranean to worship. And we have to realize that with regards to the liturgy, it was written by Moses. You can't get a better liturgist than that. And with regard to the music and the songs, King David was the singer-songwriter whose music was played in the temple. But because taken as a whole, Israel in the first century had rejected God's word, the way Jesus describes these extraordinary worship ceremonies is that they are vain. In vain do they worship me. Now, of course, there were some notable individual exceptions. You could name them, I'm sure. Simeon was there in the temple. Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace. Anna was there in the temple, waiting for the redemption of Israel. Nicodemus was amongst the Pharisees. He turned to Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, Joanna, whose husband chooser was the household manager in the court of Herod, Manain. But taken as a whole, the first century establishment with its religion, taken as a whole, had bypassed the moral law of God, set up their own morality. And so the Lord Jesus declares for all the splendor of the spectacle that it's vanity. I'm not sure a better word to use for it. I mean, for their ceremonial, a charade, vanity, a pretense. And then what Jesus does is he goes on to generalize the specific first century Israel And in verse 13, he says, 
every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. In other words, if you're not going to sit under the law of God, the rule of Christ, and seek mercy and forgiveness from his Messiah, but instead set up your own show, if you're not going to sit under his word, doesn't matter how impressive the establishment, it will be uprooted. And then the guides are blind, leading the blind. Well, now that leaves the careful reader who's following the context and text closely asking this question. Where then is the true church of God? If it's not in all the spectacle of Jerusalem and Israel and all the history and the ceremony and the glorious liturgy and the wonderful music, if it's, if it's not there, which all looks so impressive, well, where is the true church of God? This assembly that is to be built on rock. And Jesus went away from there. He withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. He didn't answer a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ah, but Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And the daughter was healed instantly. Rank, rotten establishments that refuse to take seriously the moral teaching of God and his offer of mercy. And we'll find them everywhere. First century Judaism was one such. And where a rank, rotten establishment rejects the living word of God, oh, he'll build his church amongst the Canaanites. Such is his mercy. And if that were not so, you and I would not be able to call ourselves his people. Praise God. Let's pray together. We begin by praising you, our Father in heaven, for the unbounded compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, that even unclean sinners like ourselves can consider ourselves part of your church. We confess, Father, our prejudice, our narrow horizons. Please help us to see every person, tribe, nation as people to whom you long to extend your mercy. 
And Father, we pray that you would have mercy on our nation and particularly on its establishment with its rejection of your word. We ask that in your kindness, regardless of the establishment, that you would build your church. And in our midst, we might see a people kneeling at your feet and seeking mercy from the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen.